Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Today, I'll be talking with Leo Brody, who is a university professor and Bing Chair in English and American Literature at the University of Southern California. His many books include The Frenzy of Renown and From Chivalry to Terrorism. I'll be talking to him about his new book, Haunted. I am here with Leo Brody, who I am pleased to say is a friend of mine, a wonderful writer, and an amazing thinker. His new book is called Haunted on Ghosts, Witches, Vampires, Zombies, and Other Monsters of the Natural and Supernatural Worlds. Welcome, Leo. Thank you, Laurie. A pleasure to be here. A pleasure to have you. Yale University Press released your book right around the time of Halloween for obvious reasons. But now that the election's over, there's another reason that your book is extremely timely and needed right now, which is that most people that we know and a lot of Americans are scared out of their friggin' minds because of the election. And so I think the idea of examining fear... And its causes is particularly timely right now. Well, I think that's right. I mean, I hope that's right. I would certainly like the increase in sales, obviously, (laughs) uh, beyond the news peg of Halloween. But I did a piece for the L.A. Times, an op-ed piece, before the election, pointing out the way in which monstrous imagery was being used already there. You mean in the election? In the election, Mm -hmm. yeah. That is, emotions were being played upon much more often than let's say, rationality, or at least talking about issues there. More so than in other elections that we've lived through? Well, I think that's always been part of elections. It's always been part of popular culture. I mean, there's one way to kind of stigmatize your enemy is to re-evoke some old superstition, some old image of horror or, or negativity, and just kind of paste that on them. There was one blogger, one kind of alt-right blogger, who said that if you got close to Obama and Hillary, they smelled from sulfur. It's just like, you know, the satanic, let's say. And, of course, satanic images used for Trump as well, and Frankenstein images, Hillary is a witch. I mean, they're all over the place. Mm-hmm. One of the points that you make in your book, I'm kind of paraphrasing it. You might not say it exactly like this, but when there's large-scale emotional upheaval, it's a opportune time for new demons or images of evil to be let loose in the world. Like, for instance, you write a lot about the Protestant Reformation. If suddenly there's no middleman between you and God and you and the devil, then that's a huge thing to readjust to. You also talk about the idea of purgatory. If you're used to the idea of purgatory and then suddenly the church is saying there's no purgatory, then you have these ghosts that you imagine are in purgatory kind of left with nowhere to go. And so these things kind of unleash our spectral demons upon the world. And perhaps this election is doing that as well. But can you talk a little bit about these times of upheaval and what they do to people's fears? It's an interesting question. To what extent in a time of upheaval that people are more susceptible to their fears? I mean, that's usually true. That is, you're looking for something solid. So what kind of solidity do you find? Well, you often find it in religion. You often find it in folklore and images from the past. You find it in terms of tradition. 
That is, you want to hang on to something that you know is really true in that way, emotionally true, let's say. Mm -hmm. So during the time of the French Revolution, there was something called the Great Fear there, you know, where peasants thought that there was going to be an uprising, that they, they're all going to be killed by the nobles and things like that. So paranoia and fear go together. And paranoia, you can see it almost as a positive category, because what paranoia does is it says the world, there is a meaning, there is a connection between these things in the world, and you can be solaced in a certain way. You can be fearful, but you can be solaced. If otherwise, if it's free-floating fears, then, you know, you're really at a loss. But you're solaced because you see a pattern, so it doesn't feel mm -hmm. as out of control. But in the case of, say, the peasants during the French Revolution, they weren't all going to be wiped out, but those anxious fears may have been part of the reign of terror, right? It may not have helped that they had free-floating, wild anxiety. Oh, no, it doesn't help. You know, it helps, let's say, in terms of the individual, as you say, who sees a pattern and says, okay, there are some people in a dark room, smoke-filled room, who are manipulating all this. Okay, I know. It also makes you feel you're in on it, mm -hmm. you know, on this great conspiracy. I mean, it's like all the Dan Brown novels in some way. There's this conspiracy running the world somewhere, right. and I'm going to find out about it because I'm such a cool guy. Yeah, it's exciting. I sat next to a woman at a dinner party who told me she knew where that missing plane was, and I moved my seat immediately. People get anxious about accident and inconsistency and things like that. The world, in certain ways, it's a mess. There's very little. There's manipulation, but in fact, a lot of things just happen by accident. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you, because I'm not a great fan of going to horror films, and I know you are, and I was going to ask you about what your explanation was for why people love to be scared out of their minds. But in your book, not surprisingly, I found answers to that. One of them was a quote from Edward Young from 1759. I had never heard of Edward Young, but this is the best sentence I've ever read. And your quotes are great in this book, as well as your own writing. We'll get to that. But I'd never read so succinct an explanation, not only for why we go to horror films, but really for why we enjoy art. And the sentence is, we love to be at once miserable and unhurt. So that's such a great sentence. Edward Young, was he someone whose work you knew of? Oh, yeah. No, uh, I knew Edward Young. Part of my background is in 18th century literature, anyhow. And Edward Young is a fascinating figure, actually. He wrote a long poem called Night Thoughts, which is basically about wandering around in a cemetery and what you think about when you wander around in a cemetery. And he also wrote the first essay about originality. I mean, he created yeah. originality as a nice aesthetic criterion for artistic value. He was the theorist of it, let's say. So, yeah, what he's talking about in that line that you quoted is really about risk, Mm -hmm. safe risk. Mm -hmm. You know, we like to have our blood stimulated. Let's say when he says miserable, he's sort of like we're on edge somehow, but we're safe there. And that's really one of the criteria for, certainly for horror, uh, for people who like horror. Some people don't like that kind of risk and for art in general. One sentence that you write in the same section of the book is, we search out the monstrous in hopes that it won't find us unawares. A sentence I also love, I certainly understand that, but for me, that work would be reading The Rise and the Fall of the Third Reich, not seeing Scream. But would you say that those are two sides of the same kind of work that people do to try to somehow protect themselves? Yeah, I think so. I mean, some people, the more facts you can get, the better you're going to feel. 
the doctor says you have some X, Y, and Z, and you go on the internet and you kind of read everything about it there. I mean, you want to get some control over it, but you want to get perhaps rational control over it through the factual, but you might want to get some control over it. And this is why I think what happens in horror films or in art in general, that art creates a narrative that presumably has, to a certain extent, a beginning, middle, and end. And when the end comes, you're safe. You can walk out there, out of the theater. This was a big discussion, actually, in the early years of horror fiction, late 18th and early 19th century. To what extent should the horror be explained at the end? Mm -hmm. And to what extent is it going to leave you inside? Is it going to leave you saying, well, it's supernatural and we can't explain it? Mm. I think it's the end of Carrie, where you think that it's all over and Mm -hmm. you're safe, and then the hand comes out of the ground. Is that a relatively new convention of horror? Or is that, you know, that super surprise at the end after you feel like you're safe and then leaving you with that surprise rather than the feeling of resolution? Well, I think it's relatively new. I mean, the concept is old, but the thing is it's much easier to do in a movie than it is in a book. Because in a Mm -hmm. book, you're on your own time. Mm -hmm. You decide when to turn the page or when to stop and go to sleep or whatever it is and read it the next day. But in a movie, the movie drags you along in its time there. And it has a kind of rhythm. So it seems that everything is fine. And then, of course, that hand comes out there, you know, from where the Carrie's house used to be. Mm -hmm. As you're speaking, I was trying to think of examples of things that I read that kind of fill the need for horror. And I was thinking about Wolf Hall, the novel Wolf Hall, which is a history novel about Henry VIII by Hilary Mantel. And as you see the gears going into place which you're going to behead and Bolin. It's like a horror film in that you know this horror is coming and you can't stop watching it. It's so fascinating and you can't put down the book. You just simply can't. But I guess my question is, when you're in a horror film and your body is really reacting as almost as it would if you were terrified in real life, right? Does that serve a purpose, do you think, in terms of either like your body or your mind or helping you in the world in general? Well, it might. You know, Bruno Bettelheim, the psychologist, uses of enchantment, his book, theorizes, and I think it's very plausible that the fairy tales have that function for children. That is, it allows them to master their fears. It arouses them, and then it somehow, by the story itself, by the unfolding narrative, allows them to master it and to see it as part of a continuum that they can understand rather than just be terrified by. What about, and I don't know the answer to this, because like I said, I don't really go to horror films, although I may start doing it now because I'm so terrified terrified about the world. But the experience of being in a theater with other people who are all jumping out of their skin and screaming at the same time, I assume that's fun. Yeah, it could be fun. I mean, you know, people use it as a date ploy, right? Mm -hmm. Right, you can comfort the girl. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, the Michael Jackson thriller is Mm -hmm. great on that. He takes the girl to the horror film, and the way it plays with all those different levels of reality, I think, is wonderful. It is wonderful. And as you describe in your book, at the very end of it, you think the dream is over, and then he flashes his yellow eyes at you. So again, as you're saying before, there's resolution, but there's also just so much you can resolve. The terror that you felt is still out there in the world. Well, I think that goes back also to the religious sense uh, of horror as well. That is, in fact, if horror is evil or some kind of embodiment of evil, you might win the battle, but you're not going to win the war. There's always going to (laughs) be evil in the world. So you're going to be left inside, and maybe this particular 
story will wind up, but the existence of horror, the existence of this possibility of derangement and craziness and death will not end. So you resolve it just for a time. For the moment. Paraphrasing Freud, you write, a definition of horror is what every culture, no matter how different, seeks to submerge in the name of social order. As I read that, I thought, and also what every individual submerges in the name of getting up every day. We can't have our fear and our terrors rule us as a culture or as individuals. But then there are eruptions, though, of mm -hmm. fear and terror. I like what's happening now to a lot of people because of the election, mm -hmm. uh, because there's so much uncertainty, what really is going to happen, you know, instead of apocalyptic fantasies of one sort or another. So it submerges for a while. And the idea, the Freudian sense would be to keep social order. In order to have a civilization, you have to submerge these things. The Jungian sense, though, would be that the more you submerge them, the more they're going to pop up and become even more horrible and distended. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the fear that's driving the alt-right right now? Most fears are about change, about uncertainty. The non-alt-right is fearful about what's going to happen with the new administration. And the alt-right was fearful about what was happening with the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is that things were changing. History was going in a direction that they didn't want it to go yeah. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now it's time for this week's book recommendation. are happy to have back in the studio with us Paul Cruz, the artistic director at the Wallace Theater in Beverly Hills, and he is going to give us a book recommendation. Paul, welcome back. What would you have us be reading right now? This is a book that I read a few years ago now, I read to my children, but actually Michael Morpurgo, who wrote the book, has become a friend. Michael wrote Warhorse, which obviously people will know has been adapted into film and, and a great theater piece. And we asked Michael if he would be interested in adapting this novel, The Amazing Story of Adolphus Tips. Now, surprisingly, Michael had never adapted one of his books for the theatre. Other people had done it for him. So he was very interested in doing this, and we persuaded him in the end, and he did a fantastic version. But the reason we then turned that novel into a play and then is now touring, it's in Berkeley at the end of this year, Berkeley Rep, and then coming to the Wallace next year, was because the story that I read to my children a few years ago was such an amazing story and one that surprised me. I also realized it was a story that wasn't just for children. It was a story for grown-ups. And Emma Rice, who directed it, had a great vision for what that could be as a theater piece. But it was a beautiful story about the American GIs when they came to England preparing for the D-Day landings mm -hmm. and how there was a terrible tragedy while they were rehearsing the D-Day landings on the south coast of Devon and basically 946 people were killed and the story was never made public for 30 years and other people obviously knew about it at the time but it was a terrible tragedy but this book is about that tragedy and about what happened on the back of that historically but also it tells the story of two black American GIs and their relationship to both the war their relationship to a Devon family that a farming family that they became friends with and how 
the American culture and the English culture mixed and joined together, and they all celebrated Thanksgiving in Devon. And there was a love story developed as well within the context of the family and one of the American GIs. So it's a multi-layered story and obviously may be resonant to me because I've just moved to the US mm. and, you know, I can see the challenges of both living in a different culture and being part of that, but how also there's so much joy and love with tragedy at the same time that happened in the Second World War. It sounds like an amazingly ambitious children's book. I think it is an ambitious children's And I think Michael's work actually, although it's often thought about as children's books, it is multi-layered and it can be read by anybody. And certainly the story that we're presenting at the Wallace is not a children's story. It's a story that everybody will be responding to. Fantastic. The title of the book is The Amazing Story of Adolphus Tips. And the author is Michael Morpurgo, who is famous, obviously, for Warhorse. Paul Cruz, thank you so much. Thank you. Now, back to our interview with Leo Brody. Very interestingly, you divide the monsters into several categories. You talk about Frankenstein, who would be the monster that is created on purpose. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the story of how Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein at the age of 19 is so fascinating, and you cover it very well in your book, what are the other categories aside from the monster who is created on purpose? The oldest category monster is the monster from nature. You go back to the caveman, primitive man, and there are already images of monsters that are sort of part human and part animal in one way or another. Right. Animal cults and things like that, that connection between the human and the animal was an effort to kind of get animal energy animal sanction in some way. But then there was also the fearful side as well. Kind of more contemporary examples would be like King Kong or Godzilla, things like that. Godzilla is particularly interesting and the kind of 1950s post-World War II monsters because they're connected to the atom bomb there, that somehow we have unlocked the secret of nature that we shouldn't have and nature is going to take he, she, or its revenge on us. Mm-hmm. And so that's the earliest. But then the created monster, the Frankenstein monster, is, is about human activity. I am going to make a monster. I mean, what Victor wants to do is create a perfect race in the monster. He has very high aspirations here. Then there's the monster from psychological monster, that is the monster from within. You know, and the archetypal one is Jekyll and Hyde right. in that way. That is, the monster is not exotic, it's not somewhere else, it's not after me, it's in me, in fact. That's my favorite one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's the one that in certain ways is kind of closest to in our own ideas about our personal problems and things like that. Right. And then finally, of those four monsters, is the monster from the past. Because all these monsters are about the things that have been repressed, and that is forgetting the past. And Dracula is that kind of monster to me because Dracula represents an alternate reality, an older reality, a pagan reality, an anti-Christian reality there. Mm -hmm. The vampire monster, there's so many little details about it. It has more details than any of the other monsters, right? You make a huge long list, garlic, mm -hmm. no reflections and mirrors, capes, opera, daylight, hat, daylight everything yeah. there. It's like another church there, uh -huh. an earlier church. And I think most of the other monsters classically are come from overlaps between those monsters. I mean, say, like uh, the Wolfman, for example, is it to me an amalgamation of the Jekyll and Hyde monster, 
and the natural monster there. The only kind of somewhat new one, although I would put it more in the category of the natural monster, is the zombie. Mm -hmm. The zombie is, is a human, a being that had been human, that has died and become undead, and it's going around wanting to, whatever, eat your brains. Eat your brains is a later modification of the zombie. Before that, zombies just would eat you, you know, chomp on you. Mm-hmm. Well, eating brains has a lot of potential interpretations. Maybe fear of Alzheimer's there. Mm-hmm. Well, who knows what's going on with that? Mm-hmm. Um, dementia. But the interesting difference between the zombie and these other monsters is that the zombie is always part of a group. These other monsters are kind of charismatic and individual. And the zombie, there's no distinctions between zombies. I mean, they might wear different clothes and things like that. So I think that's what makes it more contemporary. And it's indicative that, in fact, that kind of redefinition of the zombie really doesn't start until the late 60s with George Romero's with Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, Yeah. that's so interesting that Romero kind of started. The zombie did exist before that? Oh, sure. The word zombie exists from the beginning of the 19th century, certainly in English there. and It's connected to the Caribbean and Caribbean religion and things like that. And that's the way it's in the movies through the 30s and 40s when you have a zombie film. And again, it's got very specific. It's about African-Americans in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. But Romero takes it and turns it more into a metaphor about mass society. And that's what's the development that has occurred since then. And Revenge of the Body Snatchers, for instance, would be a zombie mm-hmm. movie, even though they're not called zombies. Get, pod people. They become yeah, pod, but how do they become pod? Like, they get replicated by the pods. Uh, right. They right. get replicated right, by right, the pods. Right. But, and they're sort of, it's interesting, the pods is kind of, again, crossover from the natural monster mm-hmm. you know, to this new zombie monster. That remake of the one with Brooke Adams. Oh, the Invasion of the Body Snatchers, yeah. Right, which was in 1977. Sometime in the 70s, yeah. Uh, it's such a good one, don't you think? Mm-hmm. I, oh, yeah. I really love that. Donald Sutherland. Yeah, and Brooke Adams is fantastic. I feel like watching that again right now. Another great quote in your book is from... Carlos Fuentes, the quote is, the genius of Melville is that he saw that this is a country that needs a monster. I was just wondering, who is the monster in Moby Dick, do you think? Well, that's always the question in these movies. Who is the monster in Frankenstein? Is it the creature or is it Victor? Yeah. You know, who creates this being and then kind of says, oh, goodbye. You know, I don't care about you anymore. So, yeah, I mean, who is the real monster is always a question in horror situations. And in the case of Moby Dick, who do you think is the monster? Well, I mean, obviously Ahab, in, you know, in many ways is monstrous too. Uh-huh. He's I mean, obsessive in that way. Moby Dick is just a monster in the kind of popular sense of largeness too. Yeah, and also a monster from nature, a kind of sport of nature that can't be understood, really. And Ahab is trying to defeat this force of nature, and it's impossible. Right. I kind of like Moby Dick, personally. The whale. Yeah, yeah. I mean... His personality, everything. I like him. so Nice smile. Yeah. <laughs> Very charming. Yeah, I wanted to ask you something about man is monster. You opened the book talking about when you were a child and the word Hitler was the monster that you would project all kinds of fears onto. Ron Rosenbaum's great book, Explaining Hitler, goes through every explanation of Hitler, popular explanation that's out there, like he was in love with his niece. He was a copophiliac. He had was, one testicle. He had one testicle. There's all kinds of wonderful theories. And Rosenbaum goes through each one and kind of debunks each one. And at the end, what you're left with is 
what I was left with anyway is that you have to accept that Hitler was human just like you are. And any attempt to try to make him something other than human is going to fail. And it's also not going to serve you in any way in figuring out. Sure. Figuring out what to do next or what to prevent another Hitler from coming on the scene. Yes. Because otherwise, if you keep saying that there's something totally anomalous about him at one extreme, that he's just a demon somehow from outside history who came in, that doesn't help at all, really. Right. I know that while you were researching this book, you watched a lot of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Could you explain, you do in the book, but could you just tell about why you found that fascinating series? Well, I thought it was was a great series. And Josh Whedon, you know, what he did with it, I think, is fascinating. And I, I was interested in it. I wanted to follow it all the way through, 144 episodes, because I just wanted to see how portable all these myths were and how they could be brought up and recombined and turned around in a variety of different ways. Because I think that's one of the fascinating things about horror as a genre, and it has characteristics that other genres have too, which is that it calls upon the past. You know, you can't say it's a genre unless it somehow reflects a history before it. But at the same time, it has to do something new and something unfamiliar and something titillating and fascinating in that way. So that whole process of paying tribute to the past, to past ideas of horror in Buffy versus, you know, come new manifestations of it. I, you know, I was very fascinated by it because it was energizing. I talk about it in the book. I mean, I don't go into it very extensively, right. but in terms of just my feeling for what happens to horror across the centuries, it was very useful. So is it a compendium of all of these? A good number of them, definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're going to do 144 episodes, <laughs> you yeah, have to right. kind of... Have to, and, but it's happening now anyhow. I mean, it's like every new horror film is kind of plumbing the past or putting things together in weird ways. I think the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, let's say, let's put Minna Harker together with the Frankenstein monster and Alan Quartermain, and they're going to solve crimes and mm-hmm. things like that. Did that work? I liked it. Oh, okay. I, the, I didn't like the movie that much, but the graphic novel was great. You say that horror has become perhaps the most long-lived of all film genres, in great part because its basic assumptions correspond to the nature of the film form itself, which is a great sentence and very understandable. You might have to look at it twice, but I wondered if you could just go into that a little bit. Sure. The last chapter in the book is about what the movies do to all these images and tropes and stories and narratives of horror. And, you know, horror starts as a genre, as a kind of modern genre, really, in the end of the 18th century with the Gothic novel and things like that, but also painting. There's a lot of horror painting going on and things, poetry. And throughout the 19th century, there's plenty of horror writing going on of high quality. But it's really with the movies, and I think the reason I say that about the film form there is that the movies play between the visible and the invisible which is really at the heart of horror. What is really there versus what can I see versus what I can't see? And that's so easily dramatizable by the film form there. But that's also dramatizable by theater. And you make another distinction about why film is even more fit for horror than theater. Well, theater is right in front of you, and there are tangible bodies there, and they'll be using special effects and things like that, and Mm -hmm. theater can be very effective with horror. But with movies, because nothing is really there, we're just seeing an image. 
And I think, say, you know, in the sixth sense where, where the kid says, I see dead people. Well, we all see dead people in the movies. I mean, if you watch Turner Classic movies, you're seeing dead people all the time. <laughs> Nothing but dead people. <laughs> Nothing but dead people in most of them, yeah. yeah. So movies kind of confuse that relationship between the living and the dead because of their particular form. They're just as they confuse the relationship between what's visible and invisible. There are plenty of great horror movies in the silent period there, mm -hmm. but I think with sound, that brings yet another dimension into it because music is invisible. Mm -hmm. And it plays on us. We can't see it. We can hear it. And I frequently tell my students when I've been teaching the horror class, if you're getting freaked out by it, just put your fingers in your ears because probably the music is making you more upset than the images are. That's such a good tip. <laughs> I might be able to go see horror films now. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So I just feel like I need to ask you what some of your favorite horror films are. The one that comes the most immediately to mind is Near Dark which is a vampire film. It was an early film made by Catherine Bigelow, director. Mm -hmm. It's set in a contemporary Southwest, mm -hmm. and it's about a group of vampires who are sort of down on their luck. They don't wear opera hats and tuxedos or things like that. <laughs> they wear blue jeans, and they look kind of messy, and they steal RVs, and they do all this kind of stuff, and they have to go from place to place there. And, of course, then there's the Candide figure, the young man who was flirting with one of them and later falls in love with him, not realizing that she's a vampire, gets mm -hmm. drawn into the uh, coven, let's say. I think it plays with the form in a very respectful and serious way. The Scream movies are fun because they're so self-conscious about mm -hmm. horror forms right. there and at the same time, they're saying, well, even if you know all the forms, they're still going to get you. Right. <laughs> right. Well, that's a great recommendation because I think that's fairly obscure and that sounds great. Well, thank you so much. I feel like we could talk all day and on another day we will. But thank you so much for coming in. Uh, such a pleasure. And your book, Haunted, is a great book and also newly relevant since November 8th. Leo Brody, thank Thanks you so, so much. much. Thank you, Lori. poem for today is called Love Song by Dorothy Parker, written in 1926 when she was in her early 30s. She, of course, is known as one of the great wits of the 20th century and was part of the Algonquin Round Table. She, however, deplored her reputation as a wisecracker. Why was that? She felt it was diminishing. Huh. She died in 1967 of a heart attack, even though she had tried to commit suicide several times in her life. And she bequeathed her estate to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Dorothy Parker. I always thought she was overrated as a fiction writer. She undoubtedly was. Yeah. But you're a fan of the poetry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> With that strong endorsement, here is Love Song by Dorothy Parker. Love Song by Dorothy Parker. My own dear love, he is strong and bold, and he cares not what comes after. His words ring sweet as a chime of gold, and his eyes are lit with laughter. He is jubilant as a flag unfurled. Oh, a girl should not forget him. My own dear love... He is all my world, and I wish I'd never met him. My love, he's mad, and my love, he's fleet, and a wild young wood thing bore him. 
the ways are fair to his roaming feet, and the skies are sunlit for him. As sharply sweet to my heart he seems as the fragrance of acacia. My own dear love, he is all my dreams, and I wish he were in Asia. My love runs by like a day in June, and he makes no friends of sorrows. He'll tread his galloping rigadoon in the pathway of the morrows. He'll live his days where the sunbeams start, nor could storm or wind uproot him. My own dear love, he is all my heart, and I wish somebody'd shoot him. That was Dorothy Parker's Love Song, read by Beth Howland from the collection Poetic License. We have come to the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleano, Alan Minsky, our producer and questionable moral center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. I'm Lori Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening. 